If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke 15 as we're starting a new series this morning called Who's Your One? Who's Your One? This is actually part of a larger movement that our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is helping to do and just encouraging everyone to think of one person that they can be praying for, that they can be intentionally sharing Jesus with, spending time with, and the hopes of sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done with them. And we can all think of one person. I'm calling this message today, Jesus's heart for the one. And we're going to be in Luke 15, and I think it'll be uh, very apparent why we are starting this series in this text, Luke chapter 15. Now, if we're Christians, if if we're Christ followers, if we claim to follow Jesus, we know that we're called to reach people. One of the last instructions that Jesus gave before he ascended back into heaven was that we were to be witnesses. That is, we were to share about who Jesus is and what he's done. That we were to go into all the world, as Matthew 28 tells us, and make disciples. We know we have that call. Now, when we think of Jesus' earthly ministry, we think of him reaching people. We might think of him reaching multitudes and crowds as he often preached to multitudes and crowds. We know of the feeding of the 5,000, which was really just 5,000 men. In reality, it may have been more like fifteen to 20,000 people that he was speaking to. And you might think that speaking to multitudes, things like Billy Graham crusades and big churches that are seeing lots of people make professions of faith each week is the most useful way to reach people. But yet, some of the most powerful moments of Jesus' earthly ministry were one-on-one encounters where individuals' lives were changed forever. Now, you might hear this idea and you might think, well, hmm, I don't know about you know, proselytizing your faith. I mean, especially if you're here and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're kind of skeptical of the faith. You might think, I, I don't know about that. You know, that seems a little culturally imperialistic. You know, it seems like you're trying to force your beliefs on somebody else, and I, I, I don't really like that. Now, even if you're saved, you might not be thrilled about going out and telling people about your faith. We all try, though, let me just say this, if that's you and you have skepticism about proselytizing, let's be honest, we all try to proselytize people to something, right? We all have ways of trying to win people over to a certain way of thinking or a certain opinion. We do it every day. And let me ask this question, is proselytizing for what is right ever wrong? Is it ever wrong to tell people about that which is good for them, that which is best for them? Of course not. Of course not. And, but even then, even when we know that, even when we know it's good to share the truth with others, no one wants to feel like a salesman, right? I mean, even if you were a salesman, you don't like to, to feel like you're pushing your beliefs on somebody. You don't want to feel like you're uh, a, a multi-level marketing person. Sometimes that's what maybe comes to your mind when you think of sharing your faith. You feel like, oh, am I, am I signing up for Amway? I mean, that happened to me when I was working out at the gym one time, and a guy came up to me. We had a good conversation. He's like, hey, man, let's meet up for coffee sometime. I'd like to tell you about my mentors. Radars are going off, meanwhile. And as soon as we got together, of course, it was Amway. By the way, nothing wrong with that. If you do that, that's, that's cool. Uh, but let's be real. No one likes to be sold to either. How many of you ever get telemarketing calls from Spectrum or somebody else? I get them all the time, and they're like, hey, this is so-and-so with Spectrum. I'd really like to offer you this special rate that you can only get for a limited amount of time. 
And I'm like, um, unless it's zero dollars a month with no contract, I'm not interested. Of course, they hang up at that. Well, no, they don't hang up. I, they know they're not going to get me at that point. So I go ahead and say, thank you for calling. Have a good day. Click the phone. And sometimes we think that's how people might see us if we try to share the faith with them. But I'd ask you to back up for a moment. If that's you and you have doubts about sharing the faith or, or having the faith shared with you, and what is the ultimate good? Ask yourself that question. What is the ultimate good? What is the ultimate standard of right and wrong? Well, that takes us back because there's only one right answer to that question, to the person of God. And that God himself created us to be in relationship with him. And he revealed himself to us in the person, fully God, fully man, the man, Jesus Christ, and through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he made a way for us to have that right relationship with him. And that's what every person needs. That is the highest good for any human person is to come into right relationship with God. So that is the highest good. That is the good we are called to share. So sharing the gospel, folks, is much bigger, much better, much more profound than offering them some kind of a service or a product. It's much more than inviting them to church, as good as that is, by the way, folks. It's still great to invite people to church, but sharing the good news of who Jesus is is more than that. But how do we go about doing it? How do we go about doing it in a way that doesn't feel salesmanish? I believe the first thing we need to do is get Jesus' heart for the one. Jesus is hard for individuals. Jesus is hard for the lost. And we see that in Luke 15. So read with me. If you have a copy of God's word from Luke 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. This is what it says. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. That is Jesus. They're coming to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman among you who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now this is a profound moment in Jesus' ministry. The, the sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to him. So are the Pharisees and scribes. Now there's two different reactions going on. But the fact that people are drawing near to listen to Jesus, that's a good thing. And we need to draw near and see these two parables that Jesus tells. Really one parable... Uh, because what you have is you have one analogy of a shepherd losing a sheep going after that and then a woman losing a coin. They really make the same point. So Jesus is emphasizing something big to us by repeating it twice, basically. And I believe what this text shows us 
is Jesus' heart for the one. Jesus' heart for the lost individual. Really, and it's still true for, for those who will become Christians too. And it shows us three realities, three truths about Jesus' heart for the one. The first one is this. Jesus' heart for the one is for all kinds of people. Jesus' heart for the one is for all kinds of people, all different kinds, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different ages, all different economic levels, all different cultural backgrounds. Jesus' heart is for all different kinds of people. And we see that especially in verses 1 through 3 and then in verses 4 through 8. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus' heart is particularly for two different kinds of individuals. One, for individuals who aren't right with him and don't think they, who don't think they are. They know they're not right with God. But it's also for individuals who think they are all right with God but really aren't. See, we have two groups of people here. We have the tax collectors and sinners. That's one group. Then we have the Pharisees and the scribes. They were two distinct groups of people. The first group is the tax collectors and sinners. They're drawing near to listen to Jesus. And then we have the scribes and the Pharisees who are already there. They're drawing near too, but they're drawing near to complain. They're complaining because they see these other individuals coming to Jesus. They even complain in a very contemptuous way. They say, this man. That's like saying, well, that guy over there, he, you know, he's one of those people. That's what they were doing here when they see the sinners, the tax collectors, coming to Jesus. They were all here. They were all here close enough to hear him. That's why it says in verse 3, he told them this parable. Jesus sees their complaints. Jesus sees the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to listen. So for all of them, he tells them this parable, and he tells it for us Today, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were the people who would have been looked down on. They were the people who were seen as, as not good candidates for being godly people. Tax collectors were considered some of the worst of the worst in Jewish society. They were considered traitors to their own people because the way they made their living was by taking a little bit extra off the top when they collected taxes. Not only that, but they worked closely with the Romans, who many of the Jewish people hated, so they were working closely with the Gentiles, so it was like, nah, we, we hate them. And the sinners, the word for sinners here was a generic term for anyone who was guilty of breaking God's law. But here it especially describes the people who were irreligious, people who didn't observe the law, people who didn't come to synagogue each week. They were definitely seen as people to be shunned, people who were immoral, people who, who didn't have their act Together. Now, on the other hand, the Pharisees and the scribes were two types of religious leaders at this point in time in history. And they were the people who, at least on the outside, appeared to have it all together. They were the moral, the upright, the respectable. And they were the people that most of the people would have looked up to, at least in some way. Now, we need to back up a moment because it says these groups, especially the sinners and tax collectors, were drawing near. They were coming near to Jesus to hear him. Why were they coming near to hear him? Well, it may have been something about who Jesus was, and I'm sure it was. It may have been something about the things that Jesus did in terms of healing and performing miracles. He had a reputation that drew people in. It may have been the way he treated other people that drew them in. And those all things, those things all had something to do with it, I believe. But one thing I want to be clear about this morning is one reason they were coming near to him was not a softening of the message. If anything, it was putting the message out there bluntly. 
You see, this whole account comes right after chapter 14 where Jesus has given some of the most blunt and by many people's standards today, harsh calls to discipleship. Now, we can't look at the whole chapter, but I want to highlight a few verses. Look at 14, verse 25. It says this, 14:25 tells us this. It says, now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down? And calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. That cost, I believe, that Jesus speaks of is yourself. It's, it's giving yourself over to God. It's surrender of you being the owner and ruler of your life and recognizing Jesus as the rightful ruler. Now, while that may seem steep, it's not so steep when you recognize the fact that, you became a Christ, that if you became a Christ follower, Jesus already bought you with his life, with his death, when he went to the cross. So that giving over of yourself to Jesus is really just the outworking of your faith in who he is and what he's done. But there again, there again, this is uh, not... Uh, a softening of the call to discipleship. In fact, chapter 14 ends with this. It says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. And then verse 15, the first thing it says, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to him. So all that to say, being winsome and attractive to sinners doesn't mean softening or minimizing the call to discipleship. No, if anything, it means being upfront. I believe being bold about it. Now that doesn't mean you always need to lead off with what Jesus just said when you're talking to a lost person, okay? That doesn't mean the first thing you need to say to them is, hey, man, you need to hate your mom, your dad, and everybody else if you're going to follow Jesus. By the way, Jesus was using hyperbole there. He was saying that your love for, for me should be so great that your love for other people looks as hatred by comparison. You may not lead off with those words, but you don't ignore them either. You don't ignore the, the reality that, that following Jesus means giving yourself over to him. Following Jesus means putting your trust in him in such a way that it's going to work its way out into to following him with your life. And it's in response, though, to this complaining by the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus tells them this parable. He tells it to them as the Pharisees and scribes were looking down on the tax collectors and sinners. He wanted to make a point to all of them. So he uses these two Parables. By the way, parables may seem to us like nice little moral lessons, moral stories, almost like a fable. No, 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 no. They are much more like hand grenades with the pen pulled. And Jesus tosses it here and sees what's going to happen. And he couldn't make his points more blunt. See, Jesus' heart for all kinds of people includes people who can't find themselves. People who can't find themselves. I don't know if you've ever heard someone use this kind of phrase, but sometimes people will say, I had to go find myself. You know, I had to, to take this trip or go on this journey or take some time off work to, to find myself. And what they usually mean is something along the lines of finding a sense of purpose or meaning in life. Now, people can indeed find those things in ways that will 
last for this lifetime only. But when it comes to being found by God, to finding an eternal inheritance in heaven instead of hell, to finding right relationship with God, you cannot find yourself. There's a reason Jesus uses the analogies that he does in these parables. There's a reason why he uses a a lost sheep and a lost coin. Now sheep, yes, they were living creatures. They were animate objects. But sheep were notorious for wandering off to the point where they could not find their way back to where they needed to be. It required a shepherd going out and finding them. And a coin, that's even more blunt. A coin's an inanimate object. Okay, we might, you know, think sometimes, well, it just appeared there in in my drawer or on my uh, dresser or whatever and think that it almost feels like it finds itself. But we know that inanimate objects don't find themselves. It's the same way with people who have not yet come to Christ. They can't find themselves without hearing the gospel and being found by Christ. See, God is all-powerful and he can do anything, yes. He can reveal himself in any way he sees fit. But his normative way of revealing himself to people and people being found by him is by those who have already been found going and sharing the good news of who he is with them. That's the normative means of drawing people to himself is people who have already come to Christ, going to them, sharing the message of the gospel with them, And it may be in a moment, it may be over several months, maybe even several years. But that's the way God normally uses to draw people to himself, is by sharing the gospel with others. So Jesus' heart is for all kinds of people, people who can't find themselves. Secondly, it's also willing to be relentless. Jesus' heart for the lost is willing to to be relentless. And we see this especially in verses 4 and 8. It's willing to leave the crowd. It's willing to leave the conventional, the normal practice of shepherds. And verse 4 was to look over their flock. But look at verse 4. It says, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost until he founds it? Now, a flock of a hundred sheep was about a normal size for a flock of sheep at this time and the shepherd would take account of his flock every night and if one was missing the open country was considered a safe place to leave the remaining flock as long as there was somebody else to watch over them now I used to think this was a very unexpected thing that Jesus says here in other words that he was using irony what do I mean well I used to believe that when you leave that that this was not the typical practice of shepherds that Jesus describes here in verse 4 because when you leave 99 sheep to go after one lost sheep then you'd have 99 lost sheep because sheep wander around they don't just stay together on their own I believe Jesus wasn't saying that. He was, he was assuming that there would be somebody to watch the remaining flock while the shepherd pursues the one lost sheep. I always believed that the point of this parable was to be counterintuitive, that just as it might feel counterintuitive to leave the flock to go after one, that's sometimes how it feels for us to leave what we're comfortable with to go after a lost person. Regardless if it's conventional or unconventional, the point couldn't be clearer. The individual matters to God. The individual matters. The lost individual matters greatly to the Lord, and it should matter. They should matter to us deeply. We should value them. We should be willing to be relentless. We should be willing to search carefully. 
We should be willing to search carefully. Look at verse 8. It says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully, or your translation may have diligently, until she finds it. We should be willing to search carefully. Now this woman that Jesus describes here could have been any peasant woman. Many a peasant person, many of an average person would have lived in a small house with a low doorway and if anything, only one window. So there wasn't much light. So even in the daytime, if a coin was lost, you would have to have a lantern to see it. And along with the lack of light, the floor was just nothing but bare earth covered by dried reeds and bulrushes and things like that. So looking for a coin on that kind of a floor would have been like looking for a needle in a haystack. Now, there's two possible reasons this woman may have wanted to look for the coin. For one thing, uh, the kind of coin that Jesus describes here was called a drachma. It was the average daily wages of a person at this time in history. They may have needed it just to eat. But I really believe there's another reason that may have actually been more what Jesus was talking about here because he specifically says a woman. At this time in history, women who were married would wear headdresses that were made with 10 coins linked on a silver chain, much like we wear wedding rings or women would wear engagement rings today. And the headdress was considered to be so exclusively tied to the person to whom it belonged, it couldn't be taken even if they owed money for a debt. Thus, it was very valuable to the woman who had it. And I believe that this is probably the reason because to lose one coin off of that headdress would have made it incomplete. But again, regardless if she needed it to eat or regardless if it was like her wedding ring, the point couldn't be clearer. Just as that was valuable to her, so was the individual valuable to God. And they should be to us as well. We should treasure them. We should long for them. We should be willing to be relentless. And that means doing the work until the lost are found. Doing the work until the lost are found. Notice in both cases, it says the man goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. The woman sweeps the house, lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. Sometimes it may take time to seek after a lost person. It may be a process. It may take several months, even several years. I think of a, a woman that I really respect. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. You should look her up uh, on the internet, look up some of her writings. Uh, but her story is really profound. She was a professor of literature at Syracuse University. She was in a, a lesbian relationship and was a committed feminist, a committed uh, uh, lesbian, also in general antagonistic towards the Christian faith. But over time, she became friends with a pastor and his wife who invited her into home, to their home again and again and again just to eat dinner and get to know each other. And over time, they began to read the Bible with her. And God opened her eyes through this. And today, she's a very outspoken Christian, very outspoken servant of the Lord, and actually is a pastor's wife up in Durham and writes for a lot of uh, Christian publications. Her story is definitely worth looking up. She's actually written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, which is definitely a resource worth looking up in terms of how to open your home to lost people and minister them. But all that to say, it may take time. It may take time, but I'm so thankful, and I know she's so thankful, that that pastor and his wife didn't give up on her, that they kept sharing 
Christ. They kept opening their home to her. That may be what it's like. Just as Jesus' love, Jesus' heart for the lost is willing to be relentless, we ought to be willing to be relentless for the loss that God puts in our lives, that we could go after them, try to share Christ with them. So we see that Jesus' heart is for all kinds of people, that it's willing to be relentless, but perhaps most importantly of all, it is overjoyed, overjoyed to find the lost. Jesus' heart for the one is overjoyed to find the lost. There is great joy in Jesus' heart when the lost are found. There should be great joy in our hearts as well. We see that this is a joy that is shared with others. Look in verses 5 and 6. It says, when he has found it, the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And in the Greek there, that's literally he puts the sheep on his shoulders rejoicing. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me. And then the woman does the same thing in verse 9. When she finds the coin, she calls her friends, her neighbors together and says, Rejoice. Rejoice with me. This is a joy that is too good to keep to yourself. It's a joy that is shared with others. And it's overjoyed because of real life change. Real life change. It's not... Just joyful for, for any old reason. It's joyful because there's real life change in the lost when they are found. Look at verse 7. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, what in the world does that really mean? What is Jesus saying there? Well, let me tell you perhaps what he is not saying. He's not saying there's more joy in just one person getting saved than over 99 people who are already saved. No, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is a hypothetical, and he's, he is using irony here. What he's saying is that there is more joy over every person who repents than people who don't think they need to repent. When he says 99 righteous people who don't need repentance... He's speaking hypothetically. He's, he's using hyperbole here to make a point because there is no such thing as 99 people who don't need repentance. There's not even such a thing aside from Jesus himself as one person who doesn't need to repent. What he was saying is 99 people who think they're good enough already and therefore they didn't need to repent. By the way, what's repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin, turning away from yourself, turning to Christ turning to him in faith, trusting him as Savior, trusting him as Lord, turning away from pursuing yourself. It's a change of mind, a change of your heart that works its way out over time in your whole life. It may appear more instantaneous in the lives of some, but either way, it's a process that works its way out over time. And repentance doesn't stop when you get saved. It continues on in the life of of the believer. But Jesus is speaking of, at least here, the moment of coming to faith. You see the Pharisees, he was talking here directly to the Pharisees and the scribes because they thought they were already good enough. We, we keep the law. Most of them had, if not the entire Old Testament, probably the entire first five books of the Bible, the Torah, memorized. So they thought they were doing good. They thought, well, we don't need to repent. Jesus is saying, hey, you may think that's the case, but I'm telling you, there's more joy over every person who truly repents, 
no matter how much of the Bible they know, no matter how well, no matter how good they are at articulating their beliefs and their theology, there's more joy over a person who truly puts their faith in Christ and turns away from sin than over 99 good, upright, morally respectable people who think they don't need to repent. That's why Jesus is saying there is joy because of real life change. The joy of God, the joy of all the angels, as Jesus says there in verse 10, that, that there will be more joy, that there will be joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. It's a joy just like the joy of a woman who finds that lost coin, just like the joy of a shepherd who finds that lost sheep, the joy of a woman who loses her most precious possession as it may have been like her wedding ring. Finding it again. Is that your joy today, folks? Is that your joy to see lost people come to Christ? Now, this joy goes deeper than just seeing lost people get saved. It's a joy that's shared because it's a joy you already have if you're in Christ. It's a joy that comes from knowing the fact that, that God sent his son to live the life you should have lived, to die the death that you should have died on the cross in your place and to be raised again from the dead so that you could have the righteousness of God. Even though we're by nature unrighteous, even though by nature we are sinners, that means we, we do our own thing. We don't naturally submit to God's lordship in our lives. We want to be our own lords and saviors. We want to find our own ways. But when we put our faith in Christ because of what he did, we can be made righteous with God. That's good news that should bring you joy, and you should want to see others find that same joy by coming to the right relationship with God because of their faith, because of faith in Christ. That's the desire. That should be our joy. Now, some people say they want the lost to be saved, say they want non-Christians to become Christ followers, but what they really mean is they want people who are already like them to become Christ followers. Yeah, yeah I want you to repent Provided you mostly already act like me, dress like me, make about the same amount of money, have about the same educational level as me, and the, yeah, then we can talk. It's got to be for more people than that, folks. Jesus' heart for the lost was for all kinds of people, people who are very different than you, people who may have a very different worldview than you, who you may wonder, how do I even begin to share the gospel? I'm sure that that the pastor and his wife who shared the gospel with Rosario Butterfield looked at her and think, this isn't a likely candidate to come to faith in Christ. This is somebody who's probably out ready to protest against us. But they didn't stop. That didn't stop them. It shouldn't stop you. We should have a desire to see all kinds of people saved, not just the people who are already more or less thinking like us politically, socially, morally. We need to reach the people who, who aren't thinking like us. Some people say they want the lost to be saved, but what they really want is for the church just to grow a little bit, but not too much, so that they can keep their influence in the church and keep things the way they like it. They've already got their friends, their ways of doing things, and if too many new people come in, it'll mess things up. If that's you, I pray that God changes your heart to see that, that more people coming into the kingdom is, is better than any influence or position you may have in the church currently, that you have a longing to see this room, and not just our church, but every church that preaches the Bible filled to overflowing Sunday after Sunday, reaching new people. And here's the thing, you may hear this and think, gosh, again, where do I start? 
That's the whole emphasis of our series. Start with one person. One person that God puts on your heart. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's someone you see at the gym. Maybe it's somebody uh, you run into at the grocery store. Whatever the case may be, start with one person. Pray for them. Pray for them, not just when we do this series, although this is a, a great time to, to, to start with that, but keep praying for them. Find ways to invite them to your house or invite them over for coffee at a coffee shop or for lunch, whatever you may like to do. If you play golf, take them to play golf. Whatever you do, find a way to connect with them so that you can share Christ with them. So as our praise team comes back up this morning, I just want to ask you that simple question, do you have Jesus' heart for the one? Do you have Jesus' heart for the individuals God has put in your life? to share him with. Do you have Jesus' heart for the one this morning? Or if you're honest with yourself, maybe it's not quite there. Maybe you find more joy in other things. Maybe your, your greater joy is really in other things. And, or maybe you're scared. Maybe you don't know if you have the courage to do this. I want to invite you to come and pray for that this morning. Maybe there's an individual that God's already put in your heart and you know that's the person that God wants you to focus on in these next few weeks. Maybe you just want to come pray for them today. But I would be remiss if I didn't just talk to believers. I know that some of you may be here and you're not a Christian yet, and I want to ask you, are you one today? As you've heard this, you, you realize that the, the gospel is true, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is true, that he is, as he said in John 14, 6, the way, not a way, the truth, not a truth, the life, not a life. He is the only way to right relationship with God. And you want to know that you have that today. You'd like to come today and just ask the Lord to come into your life, to save you, to be your Lord, to be your Savior. I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe there's something else that you want to pray for this morning. You can respond. We always want to take this time to respond to God's word, not just leave the same way we came in. You can respond right where you're seated. If you want to, uh, or, or, or we're going to stand in a moment and sing this song, and you can respond by making this song a prayer to God right where you are. If you want to come forward and pray, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to, to pray with me about a person or just about having that courage and that wisdom to know how to share Christ with others, I'd love to pray with you about that. If you've never come to know Jesus yourself, as the Lord and Savior, and you'd like to know about how to do that, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. But no matter how the Lord is moving on your heart this morning, I want to ask you to stand at this time. Again, you can respond right where you're standing. If you want to come down to the front and pray, you're welcome to do that. But let's not leave the same way that we came in this morning. Let's respond to God's truth together this morning.